0: Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Good evening, dear friends in Christ Jesus. We have finally come to the evening of Good Friday. And I suppose as you came into church tonight, you were very much aware that this was the evening of Christ's death because you saw the cross erected on the lawn of the church. It's been lying on the ground up until today and tonight you perhaps notice that it is now standing erect that our leaguers have draped it in black because today is Good Friday. I suppose there are times when we say, I wonder why they call it Good Friday. Perhaps we may say to ourselves, why haven't they called it Bad Friday or Evil Friday or a Black Friday? But it is Good Friday, isn't it? Because something good really happened on this day. And in the church, when Good Friday comes, as you no doubt have noticed, We do not put flowers on the altar, and that's about the only service that we have when we would rather not have flowers. And it's the only service of the year when the vestments are black. If you notice the parliaments, the hangings are black, and the stole, if a minister wears one, is black, and it's the only service, as I say, when we have that. It's rather interesting about Friday, Good Friday, and how even superstition has woven itself among men that if Friday happens to come on the 13th of a month, that, that to those who are rather given to superstition, they feel that there is something dangerous and foreboding about that. May I say this thing of Friday the 13th comes from the fact that in the upper room, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, there were 13 at the table. And of course, one betrayed Jesus. And so there has grown up this superstition of being 13 at the table. And some individuals always count and will never be seated at a table if there are 13 because uh, they believe in their superstition that someone will die very soon of that group of 13. But this is Good Friday evening. Last night, as you know, in talking about some of the disturbing questions as regards the story of Christ's sufferings and death, we listened to the question of that penitent thief who was crucified on the right of Jesus when suddenly, and we looked at it as a mysterious thing, he who had been turning to Jesus and mocking even as the man who was crucified on the left, but he suddenly turned and said to the man on Jesus' left, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? Well then, you know, Jesus spoke seven words from the cross, or seven statements. The next statement that Jesus spoke was to his mother Mary who was in front of the cross and to John the beloved disciple when he said to Mary, woman, behold thy son. And he said to John, John, behold thy mother. It's rather interesting, friends, that the seven statements that Jesus made that are recorded in the sacred record, uh, of them six were stated by Jesus and spoken in the Greek language. We must understand that the universal language at the time was Greek. Everybody spoke Greek. That was the one language of all. And yet the Jew spoke his own mother tongue, and that was Aramaic. And the child that was reared in a Jewish home was taught the Aramaic. It is a corruption of the Hebrew language. And this was the mother tongue. And of the seven statements, six of them that Jesus spoke were in the Greek language. The Romans could even understand those statements. But there was one that came in the Aramae. It came, as we would say, in his muttersprache, his mother tongue. And that's why some didn't understand He was nailed to the cross about nine in the morning and about noon there was a great darkness that came over the earth and the darkness lasted until three o'clock when he died. And it was nearing the hour of three when there came from the lips of Jesus in that darkness, there came this fourth statement that we're going to talk about tonight. And this came from his muttersprachy, from his mother tongue, in the Aramaic. And he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani." And there were even some Jews there who didn't understand it. Uh, They didn't know the mother tongue. They knew the Greek. And that's why some said, because Eli, Eli sounded like Elijah, that some thought he was calling for Elijah. They remembered that Malachi the prophet 400 years before had said something about the return of Elijah. But Jesus had told his followers that, that person was John the Baptist who would come in the spirit of Elijah. So some didn't understand and of course the Romans didn't at all. And so in the sacred record we are given an interpretation that when in his mother tongue he cried out in that darkness, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The psalmist tells us that this is what he said and you recall we read in the 22nd Psalm, that was written a thousand years by inspiration before this occurrence, that here were the words that Jesus borrowed from the word of God. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, oh, why hast thou forsaken me? And on this the evening, the anniversary of his death, we want to look at this question that Jesus asked in the darkness, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And oh, it brings some disturbing questions, and I'm sure to your mind and to mine. When you say, when he cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? We say to ourselves, I wonder why. Why did God forsake him? We may say, wasn't he God? And as tonight we stand at the cross and we say to ourselves, why had God forsaken him? Why he was God too. And in the word of God, you and I say, why God the Father he was speaking to. And he was God the Son. God forsaking God Wasn't he God? There stood John at the cross. John had been up on Mount Tabor with Peter and James. The night when Jesus went up there, you know, and he was transfigured. John, with his own eyes, saw the glory ooze from the body of Jesus when his face shone as the brightness of the sun and his clothing whiter than the light. John was one that saw it. John saw his glory that night upon Tabor. And John knew that he was God. And there stood Mary. She knew that he was God. God. And yet, here he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? John had seen many miracles that he had performed. He had healed the maimed and the halt and the blind and the leper. You and I stand there at the cross tonight and we say, What a mystery! God forsaking God. That's what happened. We say, what did he mean? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We say, that bothers us, it upsets us. And we say, well, not only was he God, but surely he was without sin, wasn't he? Surely he was without sin, because as we've come along in this Lenten season, we were with him when he stood before Caiaphas, the high priest, the head of the Jewish tribunal, the head of the Jewish Sanhedrin, and when again the head of the church put him under oath and said, "I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of the Living God," and how he swore that he was, and how they tried to convict him of guilt and of sin and no one could do it, and finally the charge was blasphemy, and then we have heard how under Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, there was no charge that was proved against him, and we stand at the cross tonight and we say, wasn't he without sin? And he was without sin. He was one man that dared in his ministry to stand before the world, and that's what he did one day, and he says, which of you can convince me of sin? You and I tonight remember that, and we say he stood before the world of his day, and even 2,000 years later in our day, no man has ever been able to convict him of sin. That is a life that has been examined, that has been scrutinized, that has been analyzed, that has been psychoanalyzed, and men stand and men say the greatest life that was ever lived, no sin. There was no guile in him. When we stand at the cross tonight and we hear him cry out in his Mutter Sprache, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you and I say, Oh, what a mystery. He was without sin. How could God forsake the Son who was without sin? But he was forsaken of God. And this bothers us, doesn't it? And we stand at the cross and We look again and we hear that cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh God, how could you do such a thing? He calls him God, not Father, because there is a forsakenness. And he calls to his Father as God and says, Oh God, how could you do this to me? This is what he's crying out in the agony of the cross in that darkness on that good friday and you and i say that that bothers us and it disturbs us and it upsets us and we say to ourselves uh wasn't again this forsakenness that god had toward him uh wasn't that a horrible example of god's love towards him we may stand at the cross tonight we can say how could god have loved him How could God have loved Jesus and have forsaken him on the cross? That bothers, doesn't it? There are those that stand at the cross and they say, God, a God of love. You tried to tell me that God is love. I don't see any love at the cross. Many a man stands and he says, I see a God that is brutal, a God that is horrible, a God that has a taste for blood. A God that rejoices in seeing somebody suffer. Yet tonight you and I are standing there and we know that God is a God of love, don't we? And we say, well, God is a God of love, but in forsaking him, where, where is this love? Where is this love at the cross? And I'm sure if we stop and just consider, we can see love. If we go back to the Garden of Gethsemane, where we were in this Lenten season also, we will remember this, that God didn't force the cross on his Son. We will recall that in Gethsemane, when Jesus prayed and he asked his Heavenly Father, he says, "Oh, my Father, if it be possible, if there is some other way to save the world, then God, let's use the other way. But if there isn't, not my will but thy will be done. And we stand at the cross tonight and we say, I can see the love of God. God didn't force him. God wasn't a God who was thirsty for blood. God wasn't again turning on him in a great revenge and God again wasn't reveling in misery. We can see the love of God when we realize that Jesus was there because he wanted to be there. This was voluntary on his part. This was willingness on his part. As we saw it in Gethsemane when he arose after praying in Gethsemane said, Arise, let us be going. He was ready. He was willing. And in this mystery of this tremendous question of Jesus, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I can see love there when I called to my mind that he went to the cross because he wanted to go to the cross. Well, there are a lot of disturbing things, aren't they, when we stand on the evening of Good Friday and we stand at the cross and we hear again this mutter sprake call of Jesus, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we say to ourselves, isn't God supposed to be a God of fairness? Isn't God supposed to be a God of justice? And when they say, I don't see any fairness on the part of God forsaking his son, Jesus. And many a man stands at the cross and he despises it and he says, God's unfair. After all, Jesus on the cross was innocent. Why should he? cry out, why have I been forsaken by you, God? Yet he was forsaken. Yet when you and I again stand at the cross and we look at him tonight and we say, "Well, God was fair, God was just. All that we need to do is to go back into the Old Testament to the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah lived 700 years before Calvary. But in writing about it, it is as though Isaiah stood right at the cross, as you and I are looking at it tonight. And Isaiah, in the 53rd chapter, he tells us something which assures us that God is fair, that God was fair in forsaking Jesus, because Isaiah says that Jesus was our substitute. He was innocent, to be sure, but he had asked, his heavenly Father if he couldn't take our place. And Isaiah, seven centuries before, said this about him. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him, stricken, smitten, of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him And with his stripes, we are healed. And then when we stand there tonight, we hear that tremendous cry from the depths of his soul when he went back to his mother tongue that Mary had taught him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We say God was fair. He had willingly gone to the cross and he had said to his heavenly Father, I'll be the substitute for all sinners. You let me take their place. And so in fairness, in justice, God allowed his son who came out of the ivory palaces and into this world to take your place and mine. Can't you see fairness and justice there? But oh, as we stand the night and we say, what does it all mean? Why did he cry out, Eli, Eli, Lama sabachthani'? my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we may ask the question. It must have been terrible to be forsaken of God, wasn't it? I realize that many people stand and look at Calvary and they say, I wonder why he cried out in such agony. There were two malefactors that were crucified too. They didn't cry out like that. The one was mocking the whole time and this one was holding his peace. How does it come that in that darkness that Jesus cried out from the depths of his soul? There are those that say, was he afraid to die? Many people are not afraid to die. Was, Was it this that he had a horror of dying? Well, friend, if you're standing at the cross and you think that Jesus was afraid to die, that wasn't it. We've got to say, what did he mean when he was forsaken of God? When he was forsaken, and that's why he calls him God, oh, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. In that moment on the cross when he was forsaken, God the Father cut himself off in an absolute sense from his son he cut off his love and his mercy from him and if you would ask me tonight pastor what is hell hell is the absolute absence of god's love and of god's mercy Now do you begin to understand what Calvary means. It was not just dying a natural death. But when he cried out on the cross, it was there forsaken of God that he in his body, friend, was bearing the equal of an eternity in hell for you and me and the entire world. Human race, that's what it means. And I don't know about you, but I stand at the cross, and it just is beyond me. If there will have been 800 trillion human beings, or if you wanted a 1,000 trillion human beings on the face of this earth from the time of Adam to the last child, then this is what Calvary means, friend, on this good Friday evening that your Savior and mine, in being forsaken of God, he bore the equal of what 1,000 trillion human beings would suffer if they spent eternity in hell. That's why, my Lord, on this day, centuries ago, in the great grief that he could only express in his mutter sprake cried out in agony my god my god why hast thou forsaken me that's what calvary means and if you can stand there tonight with me as we stand and we hear that cry from his soul then we've got to say to ourselves it was a horrible horrible price that he paid he bore hell for you and me when we stand there then again tonight we can say this to ourselves then surely this being forsaken of god was a glorious demonstration of how much he loves you and me I don't know how many of you may be here tonight who sometimes wonder whether Jesus loves you. You may say in despair, you may be a bit on the despondent side tonight. You may look back in your life and you may say, there's no reason in the world why he should ever love me. Because I haven't loved him. Because, again, I have done so many things that have been wrong in his sight. I have grieved him so many times. You and I may say, how could he ever love me? But oh, if you can just stand and realize this. He said one day, greater love hath no man than this. Let a man lay down his life for his friends and he answers you and me. If we're in the fit of despair and despondency and we feel that our sin is greater than we can bear, he says to you and me tonight, I died for you, son. I died for you, daughter. That's how much I love you. I bore hell for you. And I love you with an everlasting love. There is no one on the face of the earth that I love more than I love you. I love you as though you were the only human being alive on the face of the earth. And I love every man like I love you. That's what Calvary means. That's what it means because on this day in the darkness, he cried out from the depths of his soul. His mother understood, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When we stand at the cross tonight then and we hear that cry, Then when we ask ourselves, what's the attraction of the cross? What makes the cross the magnet that it is in the world? Then we begin to understand the mystery of Calvary. You know, he said one day, he said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, yes, on the cross. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then you know he said one day and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. Tonight as we look at the cross and we say, what, what's the magnetism of the cross? What's the drawing power of the cross? Isn't it this? That he was forsaken of God for you and me, because he yearns for your salvation and mine. That it it draws you and me because here, here we find hope. That it matters not who you and I are or what we are. It matters not your past or mine. It matters not how shameful and disgraceful it may be. It matters not whether people will talk to you and me or whether, again, we can mix in polite society, it doesn't matter, but you can stand at the cross of Calvary. And you and I can say this, there's something that draws me to the cross, because he went and bore hell for me, and therefore he yearns for my salvation. And in order that he might strengthen your faith and mine, that's why he instituted the Lord's Supper. He knew that there would be moments of weakness in your life and mine. He knew when you and I would say it's too good to be true, that again, by putting my faith in him that I'm saved from hell and eternal damnation, that my sins have been forgiven, he knew that there would be weak moments in your life and mine. And so in the upper room the night before his death, he instituted the Lord's Supper and he said, Here is bread and here is wine. And by means of bread and wine, I give you my body that was broken in death and my blood that was given in death on the cross. I give you this sacrifice that I made in being forsaken of God, and I give it to you for your weak faith that you can say to yourself, just as surely as I ate that bread and I drank that wine, I received his body and his blood. And that which was forsaken in death, and therefore I know that I am saved. If you've got a weak faith, and if again you're wondering, could Jesus stoop down so low as to save me, or to save me, that's what communion's all about. I invite the weak in faith. To the lord's supper that you can stand at his altar and you can say in a weak faith because i am sorry for my sins because he was forsaken for me i know that i am saved because i got bread and wine i received his body and blood that saves me or else nobody's saved well you know he died about three o'clock that afternoon But not before in the darkness he cried out, I thirst. And they gave him some of the wine that they had there. Not the wine that had been filled with some kind of an anesthetic. But it was the regular drink and they moistened his lips. Then in the darkness he cried out, it is finished. The job was done. He had been forsaken of God. And then his final words, Father into thy hands. I commend my spirit and what a wonderful homecoming it must have been on Good Friday that afternoon when the soul of the malefactor on his right, O Dismas, went along with your Lord and mine and he went to heaven. Well, there came out of the darkness Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man who owned a tomb nearby, we are told, and he had brought along the linen shroud to wrap the body of Jesus in. He had been a believer in Jesus, but afraid to come out, but he came out of the shadows and he claimed the body of Jesus. And Pilate wondered whether he was yet again dead, and they went and they saw that Jesus was dead, and they didn't break any bones of his body. Then there came out another man from the shadows, old Nicodemus, that had come to him by night, And Nicodemus, again, had believed in him, but he was afraid. But now he comes out of the shadow, and he had a hundred pounds of aloes and spices, imagine. He went all out. He wasn't afraid anymore. And they, with the women, they took the body down from the cross, and they put it in that tomb. And I stood in Joseph's garden, and you can, not very far from Calvary, the place of the skull, They only had about, oh, about 75 feet to walk over to the tomb, and they laid his body, and they wrapped it in the linen cloths, and they put in the spices and the aloes as best they could. But the sun was going down in the western sky, and that would be the beginning of the Sabbath. And so uh, they did the best that they could, and they rolled the rock in front of the tomb, and they sat there, and they looked and so it was on Good Friday at sundown that again they left the tomb and there we will leave him. But not before again we can say, Thank God that in the darkness, even though it came from his very depth of his soul in this Mutashraki, that he prayed, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabakhani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was forsaken, you see, because of you and because of me. That's why we can sing on Good Friday, in the cross of Christ, thy glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime what a cross no man who's ever been drawn by its magnet has ever been cast out amen the peace of God which passeth all human understanding keeping unite your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting